And now, it's the Florida Spectacular Podcast, hosted by Kathy Celestri. Find Kathy on Twitter and Instagram at Kathy Celestri, C-A-T-H-Y-S-A-L-U-S-T-R-I, on Facebook at Celestri Kathy, and visit her website, greatfloridaroadtrip.com. Now, discover a Florida you never knew existed. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's edition of the Florida Spectacular. I'm your host, Kathy Celestri, and this week in joining me is Joey Vars, pretty interesting guy, and he is the historian. Joey, is that correct? You work at the uh, Bellevue, Billboard. I do indeed. That is um, the historian at the Bellevue Biltmore. Now it's known as the Bellevue Inn. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I reject that. Um, I do, I do too. The Bellevue Biltmore, (laughs) now the Bellevue Inn, uh, was one of Henry Plant's grand hotels on the west coast of Florida. And it, in fact, was striking distance from where I grew up. I'm pretty sure we had a silver bell or a prom or something at the Bellevue. Um, Now, of course, it was at one time... I think the largest wooden structure in the world built by Henry Plant uh, had its own private rail car that went off his railroad to to take he and supposedly his family to uh, recreate there. Now, stringing this together, Joey, and I know there's some things, some some drops in the facts here that you're going to have to fill in. But what what's interesting about the Biltmore is it was a case at first of demolition by neglect and later demolition by overt demolition. And today it looks really nothing like what it looked like at the turn of the last century. But when they did uh, demolish this grand structure, they saved part of the building. And that's what that's the history you're keeping, uh, Joey, is that that small piece of building. And really interesting to walk through the Bellevue Biltmore today, although it doesn't take nearly as long as it would have to walk through it a uh, hundred years ago. So, so tell us about the building with that introduction. Tell us a little bit about the Biltmore. Well, the Biltmore itself, as you said, uh, used to be one of the largest wooden structures in the world. Uh, I have actually noticed that that term started to be thrown around in the 1920s and going into the 1930s, but it's looking like it actually might not have even been remotely close to the largest wood frame structure. Uh, But what it was, was most likely the largest wood frame structure anywhere in the vicinity of uh, the West Coast of Florida. Uh, Some of Henry Flagler's hotels on the East Coast, uh, the Royal Poinciana and the Royal Palm, uh, were probably equal in size to us at our largest size. I think that's one of the myths that we kind of see just really get entrenched in with the hotel's lures at size. I remember in my research about plant and flagler because they had a little bit of a penis showing game going on um i think that's the technical term where one of them would build a resort on the west coast and the next you know flagler would then go over to the east coast and his resort would be maybe you know his pool would be 20 feet longer or whatever and i believe what it was my first indication that at some point somebody said the biltmore was the largest wooden structure was after one of those two flagler hotels and i can't remember which one burned and so it was almost like a point of pride, right? Like, oh, well, now Henry Plant has the largest wooden structure. And I guess maybe it didn't matter if it was true. If you repeat well, something long enough, right, it just becomes fact. 
Well, and the interesting thing too with the Biltmore that not a lot of people realize uh, with, without some real deep study into the building is that uh, it actually was only built originally at just under 200,000 square feet. The expansion of the building that would make it one of the largest wooden structures, uh, that uh, ended up happening in 1924. Uh, There's actually three phases of expansion leading up to that. And so by the time we did reach our full size by around 1924, uh, the Breakers Hotel was about to burn and be replaced with the current Breakers uh, and Flagler's uh, East Coast Hotels had expanded to their largest size as well. And the rich are just not like us, are they? I mean, a 200, you describe this as in building an only 200,000 square foot structure. And, uh, you know, people walk into my house and like, wow, it's so big. And like 10% of that, 1% of that. I can't do the math. Was this indeed his private playground? Was it a 200,000 foot private place for the plant family to go? So that actually, we saw that happen more with Morton Plant. And Morton Plant was Henry Plant's son. Now, Henry Plant died about two years after the Bellevue opened. Uh, so he actually died in 1899. His son, Morton Plant, takes over. And this was the private winter estate of Morton Plant. His summer residence was in Groton, Connecticut, and and this was his sole winter estate. He did not actually have a house that he resided in. He lived uh, with his family here at the Bellevue, surrounded by all his friends from up north. So let's talk for a minute about Morton Plant, because uh, I'm a writer, and writers always have the best part-time jobs. And uh, long ago, I had a part-time job crewing on a speedboat that ran in in Clearwater and we would tell the story and of course everybody who crewed it was the harbor the crew I'm sure of every boat that took tourists told the same story as they passed Morton Plant Hospital which is on a very nice piece of property in Clearwater it's on a bluff overlooking the water if you're going to be sick they have the best views but what we told people and this was passed down as canon which you know of course I I may be one of the only trained historians who's also worked on a tour boat. I, I view that with a with a dim eye, but we were told that what happened, and we would tell the tourists this, they love this story, that Morton Plant was in a car accident and uh, the there were no hospitals in the area. So what the Plant family did is they used their considerable resources and they brought three rail cars down to the area filled with medical personnel, supplies, and those three rail cars became Morton Plant Hospital. And that's why Morton Plant Hospital is so close to the site of the Biltmore. And that's why the hospital is on such a beautiful piece of property. Now, I suspect some of that may not have been based in fact. Can you talk about that? Do you know? Yeah. So the interesting thing about that story is if we look back in the timeline to try to see how long that story has been told, we really see its origins around the early 1980s. And really, prior to that, we don't see much of a mention of a rail car or an accident with Morton Plant or any of the such. So I think that was more of a modern construct uh, when Morton Plant Hospital was really starting to first compile its history together. What most likely has happened, looking back through some of the newspaper documents and some of the other resources we have, it looks like Morton Plant's Uh, Well, the story had always been Morton Plant's son was in a car accident, and then, yes, the rail cars were brought in to fix him. But looking back at some of the documents, we actually see that Morton Plant Hospital, the local community had been fundraising for a hospital uh, as far back as the late 1890s up in Clearwater Harbor. So so that would predate the Plant family's 
presence in the Clearwater or perhaps even then it was called Fort Harrison in the area. Would it not, Joey? So, yes. So some of the local pioneers in in the late 1890s had started a fundraising for a hospital, the Women's Town Improvement Associations, the different uh, women's clubs. And it was around 1912 did these group of ladies actually approach Morton Plant and the winter guests at the Bellevue asking if they could subscribe to the cause of building a hospital. Well, this is 1912 and Morton Plant actually uh, kind of one up them on this deal. And he offered that if they could raise the $20,000 that they needed for a hospital on their own, he would actually endow them with $100,000 for the new hospital. And this is actually uh, how we see the origins of Morton Plant, which had opened in early 1915. Now, the car accident that is part of the lore of the hospital's founding, that actually did not occur until 1916 uh, with Morton Plant's son, who was Henry Plant Jr., And that party in the automobile wreck was taken to the already built hospital. So I suspect using just the various different sources and and skills that we have, I suspect that this story versus the real truth kind of got merged together at some point in the 1980s. And that's the story that is commonly talked about. I mean, that story is good, too. But, you know. The rail cars, the whole thing. That's such a compelling story. And I think that is actually in the Morton Plant. Uh, there's a book about the Morton Plant Hospital. And I think the story, the legend is what's in there. So I certainly hope you never need to be taken there, Joey, because they probably don't want that that precious history stepped on too much. It's very interesting uh, when we do the tours with some of uh, the resident physicians from the hospital and they hear that story. And you can definitely... Uh, you can see their faces change a little bit when you when, when you tell them a little bit more detail about it. Now, the interesting thing, too, though, about this was the plant railroad system was the first uh, railway company in the U.S. to offer hospital trains. So they did, dating back into the late 1880s, actually have fully equipped railroad cars of nurses and doctors and medicine cabinets that they could deploy uh, throughout the whole plant system if there was some sort of an incident. So these are definitely technologies that the that Henry Plant had available to him. Uh, but by the 1910s, when Morton Plant is now the patriarch, the plant system as a whole has been dispersed and sold off to the Atlantic coastline. Uh, so it's also not entirely sure how accessible these rail cars still would have been to Morton Plant after this time as well. I mean, that actually uh, makes a little sense. Morton Plant, not Morton Plant, Henry Plant, I believe, uh, ran a railroad. It was not his at first, but he took over and he was the agent for the Confederacy uh, or the railroad was, even though he was, uh, I don't know that he was really a noted Confederate sympathizer. He was from Connecticut, uh, but he was a businessman. So it it would have stood to reason that during the Civil War, there may have been a need for hospital cars. You might have seen that. So the rail cars, Joe, is that possible that that might have come about from when Plants Railroad was before Civil War? Uh, he took over a railroad and that railroad became the agent of the Confederacy. Is it possible that's where he got the idea of the rail cars or is that just uh, historic speculation? What we do end up seeing around the late 1880s, 1890s is Henry Plant actually builds company hospitals that his employees can subscribe part of their paychecks to. 
Uh, and this actually was one of the first examples of kind of an employee healthcare scheme in U.S. history. And I believe he built about four of these hospitals throughout the Southeast. Uh, and then I believe just the state of railroad technology also saw them kind of be equipped into railroad cars simultaneously. So I think the development of both probably were equal. Touching on Henry Plant during the Civil War for a bit, it's actually quite an interesting period of time. He had been one of the upper-level managers of the Adams Express Company, uh, which was responsible for shipping parcels on the railroads between just the eastern seaboard. Uh, (laughs) But when the Civil War broke out, the Adams Express Company actually divested all of their holdings south of the Mason-Dixon line and formed a new company that Henry Plant himself was chosen to be the head of. And this was known as the Southern Express Company. Uh, And the Southern Express Company is actually the basis of what would later become the plant system. And although Henry Plant himself was known to not be a big Confederate sympathizer, as head of the Southern Express Company, he became the only person uh, trusted by Jefferson Jefferson Davis and the Confederate government to actually ship their valuable uh, monies and items just throughout the Confederacy during the war years. Plant himself actually uh, found a way to leave the country uh, until the war ended. So you are digging up all this history while you're working there. And I know, of course, our listeners can't can't see you, but you had a zippy little hat and a vest on. Uh, is that part of your tour guide shtick? You give tours also of, of the Biltmore? Are those available to the public? Tours at the Biltmore are available to the public. Uh, We usually have them Thursday to Monday at 10 o'clock in the morning and 2 o'clock in the afternoon. My getup is partly my tour guide shtick, partly me realizing that this looks better than the standard issue uniforms that we were given. Uh, And I feel like this is a much better way to kind of immerse yourself in the era of the Gilded Age Hotel of the 1920s Hotel. Uh, and it really connects a lot of people in with the grandeur of this building. It's it's really an interesting building, especially when you see the juxtaposition of the, the old Biltmore right there with the new stuff. Now, I think uh, if I read, and again, a lot of times what's recorded is anecdotal, but there was a moat around the original Biltmore. Do you? That is not accurate, actually. I've, I've not actually come across anything that has said a moat. But most likely what that was referring to, uh, there's a little creek. So, so we're actually situated about 50 feet above sea level. It's one of the highest points on the, the Florida coast. Uh, and so it's just a beautiful bluff. And we're overlooking Clearwater Harbor. But on the north side of the property, you actually have, I believe, what's called Alligator Creek. And so to actually get to the Biltmore, you actually have to drive across a short bridge over this creek. And that actually runs for about a mile east and west, just a couple hundred yards north of the hotel. That, coupled with then the bluff line overlooking the harbor to the west, it gives the property a little bit of an appearance of kind of like being up and surrounded by water. But it's not a, uh, it's not a fully encompassing moat by any means. Well, that's good to know. And I can tell you uh, where I read it. It is the WPA era guide to the southernmost state called guide to the southernmost state. The uh, WPA, of course, being the Works Progress Administration, paid uh, out-of-work writers to create these driving tours of every state. Um, And I, my book is based on recreating those tours of Florida. And what's really interesting is that I am not at all surprised that that book got it wrong, because we had some pretty storied writers working on the book, including Zora Neale Hurston, 
but they were by no means Florida experts. They were writing down what people told them. So this book, uh, let's see, they traveled, those writers traveled Florida in 1937. So they would have been told as they passed through Clearwater by somebody that there had been a moat around the building. So that is, that is where that comes from. Well, the other interesting uh, point of that, too, is a lot of those writers as well were uh, probably also had a little bit of boosterism inside them. Uh, and it's also very possible at the time. The other thing that, that that listeners should understand, too, you know, visiting the Biltmore is this property looks incredibly different than it did even five years ago. Really, up until just a handful of years back, the Biltmore itself, once you drove across the entry bridge, uh, which is right at our main gatehouse to get into the property. Up until a handful of years ago, it was just the hotel and the surrounding cottages that the wealthy built around here. So it was also very, uh, it would be a very common thought that once you crossed the gates and crossed the bridge into the property that you were at the Biltmore. So even though the hotel is not encompassed fully by water, it definitely would not be out of the realm of uh, consideration that a writer who is briefly experiencing the hotel grounds could have very easily thought that there could have been a moat uh, when they crossed over the bridge and then was just surrounded by a half dozen Victorian homes in this huge sprawling complex uh, as well. That's fair. That's a fair point. So you are uh, fascinated by the Biltmore, I take it, professionally. Tell us tell us what else you do. I have my irons in a lot of different fires. So the Biltmore is neat because I feel like it connects me a lot to my childhood. Having grown up just north of Tampa, I was lucky enough to always know who Henry Plant was. So I always felt it was very neat to start working at the Biltmore saying, oh, I can work for Henry Plant now. But in addition to, to just that, also, I love Pinella's history uh, and especially that of Lower Pinellas uh, and, and the St. Pete area. So I also am, am lucky to be the curator at the Gulfport Historic Society. And it's fascinating because Gulfport and St. Pete's history are so intrinsically tied together that you learn so much about both of them, no matter which town you study. And so that itself is fantastic. Uh, and then I'm also a student at the University of South Florida in their Florida Studies program. And so through that, I'm hoping that I really can just take a lot of this just devotion to early Pinellas history and really kind of push out a lot of information that some people might have either forgotten about over the last couple of decades or just stories that need to be told and told better as well. Oh, I like that. Told and told better. It's always great to get a different perspective on things. I feel like we're probably both similarly aligned because I too am a Florida studies um, I'm an alumni, graduated, and uh, you know it's always nice to run across other Florida files who who like to talk about all things Florida. I'm going to let you go, but first I have to know: is there any indication that the Biltmore is haunted? You know, it's interesting with that. We've always been considered one of the most haunted buildings in Florida, and I have had many guests return to us who stayed here decades ago that have always remembered seeing something paranormal on the hotel property. I myself have not personally experienced anything, although there was a very interesting time when we were talking about Morton Plant's third wife, Maisie who does have a lot of lore within the hotel itself. So we were talking about her on a tour once, and coincidentally or not, a whole shelf of teacups 
had fallen down at the exact moment that I was talking about her in front of her picture. So while I have not seen anything definitively, I think that might be a good indication that there might still be something rattling around the walls in here. Fair enough. You know, down, I live in Gulfport and uh, we have one inn that is reported to be haunted as well. It seems like you can't have a historic inn without a really good ghost story. And we're coming into that time of year where people want to hear those ghost stories. You know, if a building or a hotel does not have a ghost story, that probably reflects it might not have been very popular during its heyday either. <laughs> to be burned by ghosts is just awful. That's 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 such an insult. Probably why we don't see many of them at the new building. <laughs> Maybe nobody's died there yet either. But, you know, hey, people die every day. The new building could be next. Joe, you've been a wealth of information today about the former Henry Plant State, I guess, or the Morton Plant Estate. You've, you've broken some myths about Morton Plant Hospital that don't make a lot of people happy. And uh, you also are dressed very stylishly, which is always appreciated in a podcast guest. Is there anything about the Biltmore that you feel like people just need to know that we haven't talked about? You know, one thing that, that I always kind of like seeing the reactions on when I give the tours, uh, we are known as the White Queen of the Gulf because of the building's appearance. Uh, we're a Victorian structure with a huge green roof and a white building. But when we first opened, actually, we so we're built out of just native heart pine and cypress woods. Uh, so the building itself, when it first opened, had a bright red roof, and it was just the natural color of the wood. It was this uh, kind of yellowish red, just very bold. But we actually had to be painted about five years after we opened because just natural wood in the Florida humidity just doesn't look very good uh, after a few years. So Morton Plant had painted the building and it looks like for at least a small number of years, he might have inadvertently or intentionally, we actually don't know, he might have copied the color scheme of Henry Flagler's hotels. So we do have evidence that strongly suggests that for at least a number of years, the Biltmore was painted green roof with Flagler yellow paint and then white trim kind of around the exterior as well. And at some point between Morton Plant's death in 1918 and John McEntee Bowman's purchase the following year, the building had then been given the current color scheme that is now well known. And that always surprises people because everyone always has known us as the white queen of the Gulf and everyone has always thought we always looked the same. And, you know, a lot of people didn't realize how much we expanded either. We're actually about, uh, so we opened around 200,000 square feet. Maximum size, we are around 850. 50,000 square feet. And we are currently at about 36,000 square feet. So those are kind of the two big facts that a lot of people uh, don't realize because the building's characteristics really were given to it so early on. Well, I know there are a lot of people in Pinellas County and actually in the Tampa Bay area who really mourn the loss of that giant structure. And I'm sure that when they hear this podcast, they're going to be Jazz to know that part of the building's been saved and that they can come get a tour from you and learn more about the history. So Really appreciate you being here today. Glad that you could have me. Thank you. This has been the Florida Spectacular. Joey Vars at the Bellevue Biltmore, now called the Bellevue Inn. Uh, the Bellevue Inn or the Biltmore Inn? The Bellevue Inn. We, we yeah, felt just... Biltmore might not have reflected the whole building anymore now that the resort part's gone. I gotcha. All right. Well, uh, the Bellevue Inn. I'll never be able to get that right. He is the tour guide and the historian at the Bellevue Biltmore in Bel Air, Clearwater area of Florida. So if you're in the area, stop by, check out the tour and get to see part of a remaining historic structure. We'll see you next time on the Florida Spectacular.